Good morning. I missed you last Sunday. I had planned to uh, preach the four horsemen from Revelation 6, the fourth horseman of which brings pestilence, but I had a pestilence instead. But it's good to be back. I'm thankful for how the church uh, stepped up with all the elders sick. Um, Trey Moss handled the word competently. Uh, I think it all shows that Jesus Christ is your true shepherd. Right? The, the, the church does not stand or fall on the elders and Gary. We stand or fall on Jesus Christ. Right? We, we are standing on him. He is our rock, our true shepherd in times of need. I'm going to have to pick up our series on Revelation next week, though. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and a topic I want to address is protecting life and our role as a local church. Protecting life and our role as a local church. So this could be a more topical message versus taking one text and kind of working our way through it. We're going to take a lot of texts and, and see what they say about this, this subject. Uh, on October 14th, 1987, I was five at the time, um, in Midland, Texas, there was a little girl named Jessica. She was 18 months old, playing in her aunt's backyard. Jessica fell down a narrow well shaft, about an eight-inch pipe, and Jessica's fall landed her 20 feet below ground level with her leg lodged beside her head, so rescue would not come easily. Not just family, not just Midland, but all of Texas and the nation watched and prayed. CNN was narrating each moment. Firemen, police, mining engineers, oil drillers gave their best efforts until 58 hours later, Jessica was freed. The world made every effort to save this little girl, why? Because precious life was in the well. Sadly, we don't find the same efforts in America when it comes to precious life in the womb. This Saturday marks 49 years since Roe versus Wade when America looked at a preborn child and stopped treating that child with dignity and rights. Since 1973, the result has been legal protection for killing over 62 million babies. There's no question anymore over what an abortion is. Uh, biologists and medical professionals, even those supporting abortion, do so with full knowledge that abortion terminates human life. They just question the baby's personhood and rights. One abortion advocate is David Boonin. In his 2003 book, A Defense of Abortion, Boonin tells how he keeps several pictures on his desk of his son, Eli. One is of Eli dancing on the beach. Another is Eli sitting in the grass of his grandparents' backyard. Another is Eli just a few weeks old. But Boonin also keeps another picture from the sonogram... It's a picture of Eli 24 weeks before he was born, 
with his thumb extended toward his mouth. But grievously, Boonin says this after recounting those, those various pictures. There is no doubt in my mind that this sonogram picture, too, shows the same little boy at a very early stage in his physical development. And there is no question that the position I defend in this book entails that it would have been morally permissible to end his life at this point. In the face of such chilling evil, we need guidance on how to respond. Science can, can, uh, continues to, to prove that life begins at conception when there's formed a new living human organism that's not part of the mother and has his or her own DNA. But science can't tell us what to do about that life. However, God's written word does. Now, some churches have have said that since the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn abortion, then we shouldn't take a stand as Christians. But that's not what a sound doctrine of Scripture teaches. We're not restricted to taking a stand only on what's explicitly commanded or prohibited. The better question is, do these divine words help us understand the personhood and intrinsic value of preborn human life. And if they do, and they indicate that a preborn human is a person and possesses intrinsic value, then all of the other explicit commands apply fittingly, like you shall not murder, but love your preborn neighbor as yourself. So, how does God's Word help us think and act when it comes to preborn human beings? And here's the first thing Scripture helps us to see. All people bear God's image and have special dignity as image bearers, including preborn children. All people bear God's image and have special dignity as image bearers, including preborn children. Humans are not the result of a cosmic coincidence, they are the result of a careful creator. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 is our first text. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God had created many things for his glory. Angels and stars clouds and birds, elephants and rabbits, rocks and trees, but only one creation bears God's image. You. God made humans to mirror His glory. Now, it's also true that sin greatly marred the image of God, but that doesn't mean the image of God is lost altogether. That can be seen in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. Just a little bit further, after the fall of man into sin, we find the image of God passed to Adam's children. And then in Genesis 9, 6, we find the special dignity of man again reasserted. God puts severe consequences in place for those who take human life. 
And so even after sin enters the world, God's image persists in man. Image bearers shouldn't be treated lightly. Their lives are precious. But how does the Bible treat preborn humans? Right? Does, does it treat them as, as persons? Do they deserve the same protections as those outside the womb? Well, you tell me. In Psalm 139, verse 13, if you wanted to read along, Psalm 139, verse 13, David describes his preborn state in ways that are fully personal. He says, You formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully. Made. He says, my frame, my frame wasn't hidden from you when I was being made intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And what we're seeing here is that God didn't knit together clumps of tissue that wasn't yet David, or that would later become David. God knitted David together in his mother's womb. In the womb he was wonderfully made. Also, if we look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 41. This is Jesus' birth narrative. Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth is 24 weeks pregnant with John the Baptist. And it says that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. The baby. Luke uses the same word of Jesus laying in the manger later in chapter 2, verse 16. Passing through the birth canal doesn't change something that was not a baby into a baby. Both John in the womb and Jesus in the manger get called the baby. It's a baby with personal feelings who kicks for joy at Mary's voice. And if anything, medical research on on what babies can sense in the womb only confirms what the Bible already assumes. But another text supporting a preborn child's personhood is Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. It says, uh, this is Exodus 21, verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. So this law presents two cases where a pregnant woman is accidentally hit during a scuffle. Uh, In the first, the woman gets hit and the injury causes premature labor, but there's no harm to mom or the child. The father names a penalty and the man who caused the labor must pay the penalty with the judge's approval. Both the mother 
and the child are legal persons under the law's protection. But the second case goes even further. In the second case, there is harm done to either the mother or the preborn child. And in that case, the severest, of penalty, the severest penalties apply. The same penalty we hear, we hear of for image bearers in Genesis 9-6, life for life. In other words, alongside the mother, the preborn child has intrinsic value as God's image bearer, and the law does what it can to protect them. So here's what I conclude from all of that. That from the moment of conception, from the moment God begins knitting together human life in the womb, preborn children are legal persons who have intrinsic value as God's image bearers. Therefore, we should do all we can to prevent accidental harm and especially prevent unjustified, intentional harm, as in the case with abortion. That's the first way God's Word helps us. Here's another way. God's compassion for the vulnerable implies special care for the most vulnerable. God's compassion for the vulnerable implies special care were the most vulnerable. So when God gave Israel the law, new, there's, you get these numerous commands, right, peppered throughout for the, uh, the way they're supposed to care for sojourners and widows and the orphans and poor and the poor, right? These folks all lack protection and security. They, they uh, didn't have welfare or CPS or, or Social Security and, and all these things. Israel had to care for these vulnerable people, and the Lord gave them several reasons why. Uh, three reasons He gives in Exodus 22, verses 21 to 27. Uh, Israel must care for the vulnerable, first off, because they were once vulnerable. Right? You were once sojourners. Right? When, when I rescued you. Uh, so they know what it's like. Also, God also explains that he's going to fight for the vulnerable. But the final reason he gives in Exodus 22, verse 27, is that God himself is compassionate. He says, I will hear their cry, God says, for I am compassionate. So if you do these people wrong and they cry, I'm going to hear their cry because I am compassionate. And so God's compassion towards the vulnerable is supposed to move His people to show compassion towards the vulnerable. Also, if we turn over to Exodus 23, verses 6 and 7, we get a, another command for the poor in particular. The, the, it says, "...you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit." Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. So the, the, the poor, you can imagine, were particularly vulnerable to, to mistreatment in lawsuits. Right? Somebody else who's got money can come bribe the judge, and this, uh, the, the one who's vulnerable uh, doesn't get a fair trial. And so God is condemning any kind of partiality like this. But something else we see here is that it's evil to kill the innocent 
even worse, what we see here is that it is evil to kill the innocent, especially when they can't defend themselves before a, an unjust society that is perverting the, the justice system. God will not acquit this kind of wickedness. Deuteronomy 24 uh, is another one here. Deuteronomy 24, 17-19 says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. So when Israel was helpless, without freedom, without protection, without hope, God had intervened. God had saved them. And now they too were to reflect the same compassion to the helpless. That's how it always works in the Scriptures. God's compassion moves His people's compassion. Okay, That's, that's what we experience in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is it not? We were helpless and vulnerable. We can't free ourselves from slavery to sin. We're vulnerable to the devil's oppressive schemes. We're orphans in that we don't have God as our true Father. But in His compassion, God sends Jesus to pay the price, to destroy the devil, and to adopt us into His family. And so just like God's compassion in the Exodus moved Israel to love the vulnerable, God's compassion in the cross should move us to love the vulnerable. That's why places in the New Testament like James 1.27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We act with compassion towards the vulnerable because that's what our Heavenly Father is like. He has shown us compassion in in Jesus. So what does that have to do with the unborn? Well, everything. They are the most vulnerable in our society. They cannot defend themselves. They cannot run away from the abortionist instruments. They have no voice to argue their right to live. Michael Spielman of Abort73.com Uh, if you want to check out that website, lots of helpful information on there, but he puts it this way, by explicitly commanding us to care for those whose livelihood is in jeopardy, he's talking about the orphans and the widows, by explicitly commanding us to care for those whose livelihood is in jeopardy, God is implicitly commanding us to care for those whose lives are in jeopardy. Here's another way God's Word helps us think and act when it comes to the, the life of preborn image bearers. Neighbor love throughout Scripture demands diligent action to protect and promote the life of all God's image bearers. Neighbor love demands diligent action to protect and promote the life of all God's image bearers. So in the law, we, you know, we get a group of of commands that, that reveal this principle. Um, take Exodus 21, 29, where you, you, you know, you've got this situation where 
Um, you, you own an ox. Let's say you own an ox, and, and the ox was just accustomed to goring people when it would get out. And others warned you about it. Hey, your ox is goring people when he gets out, and, and, uh, and you didn't do anything about it. You just, let's say you keep letting the ox out anyway, and, and, and the ox ends up killing someone. Well, God says you're responsible life for life. It's that serious. And what these commands like this were teaching in Israel was, was uh, that God's people should do everything they can to protect human life. Don't be negligent when it comes to human life. Uh, or Deuteronomy 22 is another example where you, know, you build a new house and, and you, shall, you're gonna, you have to make a parapet for your roof. You know, back, back then, the, you know, think flat roof, the, the, and the roof served... Numerous functions, right? You, you hosted people up there. They could sleep up there. You could store stuff up there. Um, and a, par, a, a parapet surrounded the roof to keep people from falling off. Without the, with, without the parapet, you know, this roof was hazardous to, hazardous to human life. And so the law isn't merely about avoiding murder. Its true intent promotes diligent care for God's image bearers. And that's even truer under the new covenant in Christ. I mean, think of, think of the teaching that we've been hearing on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He came to bring the law to its truest intent. The religious leaders of His day got it all wrong, as Ben has showed us. The law wasn't just about avoiding badness, about, about avoiding murder. If they understood the law's truest intent, they would have also eliminated every cause that can lead to murder like anger in the heart. Even more, they should have pursued reconciliation and peace, Jesus goes on to say. So in terms of the sanctity of life, Jesus ups the ante for His kingdom citizens. We we don't just avoid taking life. We repent of any cause in the heart that would lead to the loss of life, and we actively seek ways to help life flourish. What does that mean for the unborn? Well, it means that based on the way the, the Bible treats the unborn, that, that uh, from conception onward we make every effort to, to help the life of a child to flourish as God intended, both in the womb and outside the womb. So, let's talk about that. How can we help the life of a child to flourish from conception onward? How can, how can we be a neighbor to preborn children in their families? If this is how God's Word helps us think and act when it comes to the life of preborn image bearers, then, then what are some ways that we, we can help? All right. So, and I have, I have several here. So first, we need to walk out repentance with one another. We need to walk out repentance with one another. Perhaps you are someone who's had an abortion. Maybe a father or husband or, or boyfriend pressured you to have one. Maybe you are the father or the boyfriend or the husband who did the pressuring. Maybe you're a doctor who has performed an abortion. 
Maybe a situation rose in your family. Someone brought up the subject at work, maybe. You learned of someone wanting an abortion. Or you learned of someone who was going to force somebody else into an abortion. And instead of speaking up for life, you remained silent. It was none of your business. You weren't going to get involved. You did nothing. Perhaps you were ignorant of how the Bible speaks on this subject, but but seeing it today has made you feel the weight of guilt for your sinful action or, or inaction toward fellow image bearers. When we realize the true nature of our sin and how it dehumanizes others, it is right for guilt and shame to consume our conscience. If it's not consuming your conscience... Your conscience is hardened. We've broken God's law. We've failed to love. But here's where the good news of Scripture comes in. The Bible also tells stories of God's grace toward murderers and the negligent. Paul, the Bible tells us, breathed murder against the church. And yet this same man writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. There's hope for us all here in this gospel. We all need this gospel. God forgives sinners through the cross of Christ. And according to Paul's words, he transformed them into messengers of grace and truth to other people. So come to Jesus this morning, no matter where you are, no matter what guilt you're you're feeling, confess your sins God holds out mercy for you this morning. In Jesus, He holds out cleansing for your guilty conscience. He wants your life to display His perfect patience so that others in turn will believe in Him for eternal life. Second, along with repentance, renounce the abortion culture and the heart behind it. The abortion culture, or the the culture of death, that's that's so uh, prevalent today. Renounce it and the heart behind it. Part of our mission involves, uh, alongside what we said a while ago about caring for orphans and widows, um, it, it also goes on to say that we should keep ourselves unstained from the world. Right, and that that means the obvious, like choosing not to end the life of a preborn child no matter if that child is unwanted or or has a disability or the result of rape, it's still a child made in the image of God. But it also means not not participating in the less obvious things, like not using birth control methods that are abortifacient, or not using artificial reproductive technologies that, that threaten the sanctity of life. I think we need to do our homework. We need to ask 
doctor's hard questions. We need to research whatever we're considering. We need to ask, will this provide the best environment for life to flourish at every stage of development? If uncertainty remains, remember that neighbor love is going to strive to provide the safest environment for life to flourish and not even potentially die. Okay? But there's also a deeper heart attitude driving the abortion culture. And really it's the same attitude that drives genocide and racism and road rage and abuse and a host of other sins. And that attitude goes like this. Dehumanize anybody who stands in the way of my plans and my wants and my comforts. That's the heart. And this heart is closer to us than we think. Anytime we react with sinful anger because a child disrupted our plans, anytime we get irate because a child ruined something we wanted. Anytime another human becomes a mere object for selfish ends. When you think about this heart, it's closer to us than we think, but it's the same thing that drives people to abortion. Beloved, we must keep ourselves unstained from this worldliness in all of its life-destroying forms. Third, we need to pray for justice, babies, and pregnant women. Pray for justice, babies, and pregnant women. As Christians, we're confident that justice will prevail. God displayed justice at the cross, and He also raised Jesus from the dead as an assurance that He will bring justice finally at His return. And so we need to pray to that end. We need to do what Paul says and leave room for the wrath of God, right? And trust certain things to Him to, to bring justice. And, and we need to let the cries for justice in Scripture inform our cries, like Psalm 10, for example. David is in the middle of a lament uh, on, on how, how he's looking around in the world and he's seeing that the eat, eat, wicked people are prevailing. They, they watch stealthily for the for the innocent uh, to, and, and, and the helpless only to crush them. And he cries, Arise, O Lord! O God, lift up your hand! Forget not the afflicted! You note mischief, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Do you pray like that? These prayers in the Psalms reflect the prayers of Jesus Himself. Pray that God breaks the arm of wicked leaders. Pray that God topples the abortion industry. Pray that God will bring justice for the innocent. 
Pray that the unborn are spared and and the wicked exposed. And then pray also for pregnant women. Pray the Lord would intervene in cases where a woman is is callous to, to the life in her womb and more concerned with her convenience. Pray for... Uh, Pray that women would be protected from the fangs of wicked men who devour them. Pray also about ways you can enter their lives for good. your, Your prayers might seem like nothing, but our God is great. He is able to to do great things far more than we can ask or think. Fourth, celebrate new life and grieve when it's lost. Celebrate new life and grieve when it's lost. I love when families let us know that they're, that they're pregnant or, or they're going to adopt, right? I love hearing announcements for baby showers and, and when this church fills a courtroom when a family finalizes an adoption. Celebrating. Raising our glasses to the good gifts the Lord gives to us. These things cultivate thanksgiving and they strengthen hearts in our church to value the life God gives. It teaches our our children and the next generation to value that life with us. And at the same time, we also must weep with those who weep. Sometimes the Lord sees it fitting to take the life He gives. The days He numbers for some children amount to only weeks or months in the womb. Perhaps you heard a heartbeat. You got to see a hand. But the baby was taken. We must grieve with our brothers and sisters in their loss. And even this grief testifies in these moments that God's image is valuable no matter how small. And death is an enemy we long for Jesus to put under His feet once and for all. Celebrate and grieve when life is lost. Celebrate when life is given. Grieve when life is lost. Fifth, educate yourself and others in your circles of influence. Educate yourself and others in your circles of influence. Strengthen your understanding of what the Bible says about being made in God's image. Okay. Strengthen what the Bible says in its teaching on humanity, human nature. So, so many problems. Not just abortion. Pornography. Human trafficking. Homosexuality. Transgenderism. Marxism. Assisted suicide. Sexual abuse. On the list could go. They're all rooted and a faulty view of man. So keep the positive view of humanity before yourself and spread that word, that positive vision for humanity, to others. Educate your children in what it means to be God's image bearer. Not just to function as God's image bearer. To be God's image bearer. Also learn how to make a case for protecting the unborn. Some of us don't know how to do this, but we're kind of lazy in our study and 
improving these abilities. I, th I think it's an act of compassion that you buy a book and read it and learn how to make a case for life. Okay? Uh, for instance, in his book, The Case for Life, something I uh, learned more recently, uh, Scott Klusendorf develops the helpful anacronym SLED. S-L-E-D. Philosophically, he says, there's no morally significant difference between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today. And then he uses this analogy, I mean, this anacronym to help people understand. S is the first one. It stands for size. So you ask people, take, take your size, okay? You were smaller as an embryo, but since when does your body size determine your value? Larger humans are not more valuable than smaller humans. Next, he says, is the level of development. That's the L, level of development. True, you were less developed as an embryo, but why is that decisive? Six-month-olds are less developed than teenagers, both physically and mentally. But we don't think the former have less of a right to life. Then he moves to environment. Environment. When you, when, where you are has no bearing on what you are. How does a journey of eight inches down the birth canal suddenly change the essential nature of the unborn from a, from a being we can kill to one that we cannot? And then last is degree of dependency. Degree of dependency. Sure, you, you depend on your mother for survival, but since when does dependence on another human mean we can kill you? So in short, Klusendorf argues, humans are equal by nature, not function. Although they differ immensely in their respective degrees of development, they are nonetheless equal because they share a common human nature made in the image of God. So that's just a helpful anachronym to, to keep in your back pocket when building a case against abortion. Develop your abilities to argue well and, and help people see these, see, see these types of things. Also, abortion is something that goes unnoticed because it happens in darkness, behind closed doors. So find avenues and mediums to spread the word about the evil of abortion. All right? This is, I'm actually going to give you permission to use Facebook and Twitter for this, all right? I know we harp on social media a lot, but it can have good uses. This is one of them. You can keep the truth about this moral, this, this, this evil. You should keep the truth before people so that they are aware of it. If you hear of someone wanting abortion, also you could speak up. Don't remain silent. Ask the mother to wait and, and take her to coffee to, to discuss it more. Invite her to your home. Talk it through and, and show her why life is precious. Some of you are good writers. 
write to local news outlets. Write letters to your government representatives. and Help them understand. Six, rescue others from peril. Rescue others from peril. Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So again, if you hear someone wanting an abortion, speak up. It's not just time to, to educate them, but a time to, to, uh, to actually help, help the baby in the womb. Talk it through uh, with, with the expectant mother and show her why life is precious. So support crisis pregnancy centers uh, that are pro-life. Support them with finances. Support them with services. Uh, as a church, we help the pregnancy help. The, the Pregnancy Health Center that's located off Camp Bowie. So that's something we support financially as a church. Some of you have served uh, to help with sonograms, to be a counselor, to just go over there and clean up the facilities when, it, when, it's, uh, when it's closed. You know, um, some of you are there for... Um, you make blankets. To, some of you serve on the board there um, and help them. Uh, in that way, Dale and, and Mike Branch serve on the board there. Mary's done some help in the past, as well as Meg Sanks. Um, you could talk to any one of these folks to learn how you might be able to serve there as well. Um, Dale actually handed me this right before I came up here today. A um, little brochure from the Pregnancy Help Center um, where they kind of review uh, the impact they had in 2021 um, but they had 2,399 visits, 1,009 positive pregnancy tests, 787 ultrasounds. They had 934 mothers choose life. 934. That's amazing. We continue to support this. Um, Here's something else, though. Fifty professions of faith. So fifty people came to know Jesus Christ as well through their through their ministry. That's something to rejoice in and celebrate and continue supporting. Again, that's the pregnancy health center off of off Camp Bowie. Another way to uh, rescue others from peril: rescue the mothers too. Love will also act to protect the women who are wrestling with whether to have an abortion. Some were raped, and raising a child alone is terrifying. Some made poor life choices. Some are just callous about life, since mom or dad never treated them like a person either. Some have only known poverty and fear the great costs it takes to to raising a child. Whatever their story they are looking for, for help and they are looking for hope. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to be able to offer them both. Right? The church should be the first place to offer them both. The church should provide a context for healing and restoration for victims of rape. The church can also provide help for those who are pregnant and facing motherhood. We should even be ready to adopt their children when they come for help. Right? When we... When we ask, when we sit down for coffee with these families and we say, have you considered adoption over abortion? 
there's got to be a real sense that we can stand behind that question. Okay? We will, we will help them. We will take responsibility with them and to, to find that child a home if it's not with his or her mother. Uh, ben pointed me to an interview with the a Tarrant County Sheriff this, this past week, and he said there's 800, these are his words, there's 800 churches in Tarrant County and 300 children that need a family. Where's the church? I think that's a good question. Roe versus Wade isn't stopping us from adoption or foster care. Some of you may not be able to adopt, but others can, and, and they still need your help in, in doing so. They need money, they need resources, they need babysitting, they need ongoing encouragement to persevere. None of us can do it all, but all of us can do something. By the way, if adoption is something you're considering, we do have funds set aside in this church that, that accrue every year, um, if they're not used, for adoption. So please talk to us. We want to we help you to do that uh, as, as a church. None of us can do all of these, all of these things at once, but all of us can do something, right? Avoidance didn't abolish the slave trade. If you look back in history, the, it, it's the relentless pursuit of William Wilberforce-like Christians. Never should we feel a sense of, of rest or contentment in opposing abortion until legal protections for it are completely eradicated down to the pills that drug companies make. Even if Roe was overturned tomorrow, so much work would remain undone. So much. So many lives would need reforming. So many laws would need uh, to be changed. So many lives would need rescuing. So many moms would need support. And true Christianity is going to act and is going to keep acting to promote the life of all image bearers. And then lastly, let me, let me close out here. Never forget your helpless condition when the Lord saved you. Never forget your helpless condition when the Lord saved you. The Lord wouldn't let Israel forget this over and over and over again in the law. He says, it wasn't because of you, right? Or your power or your goodness that you were saved. He, he's, he's constantly reminding them of how desperate they were. Why? Because he wanted them to reflect on how, on the Lord's power and the Lord's compassion, the Lord's great rescue. And the apostles, when they're writing to us about the gospel, they don't let us forget this, forget this either. Regularly, we're reminded of how desperate we were before God saved us. You can think of passages like Ephesians chapter 2, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive. So the point in these reminders is both to humble us and to magnify God's grace in the gospel. This is the message we must remember and keep central in the church. 
This is the message that saves lives. Pro-life is the right ethic, but it is not the gospel. Christ and Him crucified and risen is the gospel. And therein lies the only hope that hardened sinners will become compassionate advocates for life. And so keep the gospel message central in our own life and in the life of the church and in our ministry towards others. In coming to the Lord's Supper, remember God's compassion toward you in the gospel. Remember where He found you and what He rescued you from. And then as you eat, consider how His great compassion toward you might keep compelling you to act on behalf of others in need, including the unborn. Trey, you want to come?